Daniel Voss has hosted more than 500 webinars. If you're anything like me, your first thought was, wow, that's a lot of answering the same question of, yes, the recording will be available after the webinar. Anyways, Daniel doesn't just enjoy the art of hosting a great webinar, he's also been instrumental in building and marketing the standard in web conferencing for a long time, GoToWebinar. Daniel worked on the GoTo line of products for 10 years, across three companies and through two company acquisitions. When he talks about it now, Daniel says he never intended to work on one product for that long, but given how much the space was growing and how he found himself at a new company every few years, it always felt fresh. As a result, Daniel has built domain expertise in both product marketing and in webinars that few others can match. So, we tried to roll up lessons from 10 years worth of product leadership in 500 webinars in one podcast episode. And uh, the slides will be available after the recording? No, 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 that's not, that's not right. This is a podcast. This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers. The ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. You've hosted uh, 500 plus webinars, which yeah. gives me anxiety even thinking about. That's a lot of potential tech issues. And uh, But uh, how many times have you been asked, will this be recorded? <laughs> uh, basically 500 times right every <laughs> single time we actually you know we have a slide covering for that so yes you will get the recording and yes you will get the slides and now stop asking those questions and, and ask the better questions the ones that are more fun uh, so you you've obviously spent a, a decade right uh the better part of a decade working on the go-to line of products go-to webinar but generally speaking, I mean, I know a lot of marketers have become sort of jaded to like the old marketing playbook. Does the world need another webinar? Like I ask that all the time to to to, to people in my like job role when we're talking about like what works. I'm like, does the world need another ebook? Does the world need another webinar? And I know you've since moved on from LogMeIn, but do you foresee yourself still relying on webinars in, in a similar fashion? And do they still work? Absolutely. I, I think yes to both. And I, I think I will absolutely be using them. And I I really dig webinars. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent 10 years yeah, yeah, <laughs> on <not>. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I feel like uh, there's I actually have I own a domain. It's called undeadmarketing.com. There's nothing on it. But like the, this whole notion of like undead marketing, <laughs> uh, where yeah. it's like, you know, email marketing's dead. Yeah. You know, the funnel's mm -hmm. dead. Well, whatever is dead, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, hey, I have like I have a hot new startup, and I'm doing some new thing, and so to get any attention, I need to declare something dead <laughs> uh, that's already been there before. So I think as marketers, we tend to like go for the shiny object and declare stuff dead, and then lo and behold, it ends up being undead, and it's around forever, like email. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you can still safely say that email marketing is pretty effective, and I think the same goes for webinars, right? So, reason I think for that is. You know, right now we're recording this on a Skype call, right? So you see me, I see you, and the same is going on on a webinar. And so if you think of all your content, right, you've got your emails and your website copy, and you and I are both in B2B. B2B doesn't always end up being the most exciting, engaging right. thing ever. So webinars, in my mind, much like other video content, are one of the opportunities for you to engage and build a relationship with your customers or prospective customers. And that's where they really shine. So I feel like they shine when you treat them less like a frontal presentation and more like a radio show. And when you start having some fun with it, get some presenters in, mix up the format, just you know, show a little of your personality of who you are as people and less you know, who you are as a buttoned-up business. Company, that, right. That's why I think they really have their moment to shine sure. and where they really work and they do work well because you had that in the question do they work well you know it depends obviously on what you're trying to do where they work best in my mind is in getting people to take an action they build trust and they give you an opportunity to get people to take an action and they work fantastically well at that 
And that's that's why I would use them in any in any future marketing strategy at exactly that moment, right? Like building trust, building a relationship with my customer base, and then getting them to take action. Right. And I asked that question in jest because obviously it's really dependent on the approach, right? The the content, the approach. And like you said, you can do a, a great webinar, you can do a real shitty one, and that goes for anything else, <laughs> blog posts, podcasts, anything, right? Exactly. Um so uh, and what what I find uh, really interesting too about about you and your experience uh, in uh, working within that product in that space is you worked on you know the the same real product line for what L- like we said before like a better part of a decade. So if yeah. you drew up a list of the, of people in SaaS, you know in B two B working on the same tech for that long, like it'd be a really small <laughs> list, right? So what do you feel Bro. like per, you know personally? And professionally, you gain from staying working on the same product and really digging deep on it for for so long. It's kind of funny. I had not planned to stay ten years with uh, <laughs> something like the same thing, right? I think the the longest gig I had before that was two and a half years or so. But <clears throat> what probably ended the up average happening... ten year for most people now, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, so I started out at doing digital marketing for a company called NetViewer, and I ended up mm-hmm. being the head of marketing for NetViewer. And NetViewer had very similar products, and so. We had a meeting product, we had a webinar product, but it was a European-based company based out of Germany and then got acquired. And so, in a sense, these 10 years felt like at least three, probably four different jobs. <laughs> and so, if you chunk that back, you end up with these two and a half year right. increments. So, I felt like whenever, I don't know, like two two years in, I usually start getting bored with what I'm doing and then I need to do something new. And I felt like within, you know, NetViewer, Citrix, then log me in. I had an opportunity to to do something different uh, every two to three years, right? I started out doing digital, I headed up the marketing team for for NetViewer, then I went over and I did just demand generation, but internationally for for LogMeIn, so that ended up being a different kind of fun. And then when I moved to the US, it turned into product marketing and actually being able to work on the product. So, So that was probably one of the key transitions that I like was going from, you know, hey, here's a box, go market and sell that box. To well, you know, here's a box. How do we make that box better? Right, and and that well, that's been the fun over the last five years, basically. Or should um, it be so a box? that kept yeah. it fresh? <laughs> yeah, should it even be a box? Exactly. Uh, so uh, that the first company you mentioned, so they were eventually acquired by Citrix, right? You've been through a couple, like you said, your job changed, you know, every two three years, um, even though you were working on a similar or the same product line, because you went through two acquisitions, correct? So that first that's company right. you worked at was acquired by Citrix. Yep, and then the and then Citrix spun uh, the go-to business out and merged them with LogMeIn, right? And so that's how I ended up at LogMeIn, and both were actually fun and good transitions. I've been in mergers at previous companies that weren't as fun, uh, but both transitions were were actually pretty good and and insightful. So in the whole NetViewer Citrix thing. Uh, I suddenly, <laughs> I suddenly ended up uh, the comms guy quit, and I also ended up <laughs> with all the corporate communications for it. <laughs> uh, and that was that was a fun learning experience. Welcome to the company, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and also in the latest transition over to LogMeIn, right? Like there's just new energy, new people, new things to figure out, and uh, and new values to deliver. So yeah, all of those have been good transitions. So early on, when you when you were at Citrix, like what did the product marketing function look like what like tell like what, what did that team look like yeah so so citrix had um i think a vp of product marketing and then a couple of product marketers um grouped by product and then they had new management come in and uh, and then that product marketing uh, organization stopped existing and sure. so when i came to the u.s the question was like hey how do you rebuild that and uh, and take it into a different direction and so that's that's what I did when I came over to the U.S. was staff up on on a relatively nimble product marketing team across the different go-to products, and so that ended up being uh, a team of I think five at the time. So one product marketing manager per product, um, pretty product-driven approach. What were the products and, at the time? So per product, what were? Uh, go to meeting, go to webinar, um, open voice, go to training, and I'm forgetting one. can't have been very important uh so so those were the products and what was interesting at the time like the company transitioned from uh from a model where there um was a lot of uh, a lot of resource pooled to uh all of these products got something they call an offering team 
And that has actually been, I've had two great fun moments in those 10 years. One was owning all of marketing for NetViewer because, you know, we were big enough to have resources to do stuff, but small enough to not have to worry about politics and a, like a lot of complication. And the second time was in that, uh, in that offering team role where the offering team was basically you had a leader for the offering team overall and that that leader might have come from product management or from product marketing uh, or even from sales could be could be sourced from different areas and then you had a cross-functional teams that uh, team that basically owned the product so uh, you had representation from engineering product ma- management product marketing sales um, and care and finance and so together you almost had this like mis- mini business unit on each product that jointly made the decisions and that ended up being really fun because you had this core team of just like two handful uh, of people that together really, you know, woke up every morning and had that product in mind and, and right. the success of that product in mind. And that was great fun and also led to a lot of pretty quick decision making, sure, which, yeah. you know, it felt like when I when I came into the business, when, when NetViewer got acquired, going from like NetViewer was a 200 people company, Citrix was a 10,000 people company, everything slows way down. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so being able to, to form these small teams and, and have you know, relative freedom to make decisions quickly uh, for being within a larger organization. I thought that was that was really fun and, and ended up working out because we got a lot of stuff done and, and product delivered in that time frame for just for how we were being organized. So what was the uh, what was the product team measured against at that time? Because depending on the size of the organization and where product marketing sits, they can be measured right for obviously usage. Uh, but also sign up. It, it depends, right? Like where where marketing comes in, where the overlap is. So at Citrix at that time, given you know, like you said, how relatively lean the team was, what what was the primary goals of of each of each unit that was working on those products? Yeah. So what we had we had a shared goal for for business success, um, and that was revenue and then bookings, and, and that was the main driver. And sure. then from a user perspective. Um, we had the main goal on uh, Net Promoter Score. So at the time, I think we introduced Net Promoter Score and then made that one of the key goals for also for just improving the product. And so we did a lot of research and, and immediate customer discussions based on that um, and looking at, okay, how can, we, how can we get that up? And that led to some pretty decent Especially initial jumps, uh, it kind of kind of plateaued off at some point. But uh, but focusing on NPS for maybe the first two years led to some pretty quick uh, improvements to the customer experience overall. Um, and then I felt like you know like two years in on the product side, you were you started to optimize for you know smaller increments. Um, and then at that time, we swung back over to all right, let's. You know, we've looked at users now. Let's look at at the market and like what else could we be doing that would deliver outsized value? Um, and that was specifically for me uh, at that time. That was specifically focusing on go to webinar uh, because at the time I was offering lead right. for for that product. What would you say like the split of of time priorities was for for someone working on that team working for a specific product, go to webinar for example, in terms of customer research, talking to cu- customers. Um, versus promotional materials, right? Creating campaigns, content, and things like that. Like, what, what was the, you know, what would the average, uh, you know, day to day or or month to month look like for somebody on that team? So it's a good question because, like, because of that cross-functional nature, it, it varied quite a bit. So sure. where you had people that were in in customer experience, right? Like, obviously, I'd say like 100% of their time was uh, was spent talking to customers. If I look at my team at the at the product marketing team, um, I'd say we'd we we'd spent probably spent over half of the time on customer research and like strategy, market segmentation, competitive. So we spent the majority of our time um, on understanding the customer in the market, and then we were collaborating on the go-to-market side we were collaborating with a demand gen function Mm -hmm. that was kind of horizontal and and the sales function and so in that sense we were in the fortunate position to have a pretty strong demand gen team that was able to take positioning messaging and like broad ideas for who to target and what to campaign 
and then just run with it. Um, so that gave us the freedom to focus on uh, on the product and on the customer side. Right. And that's honestly, I think that's where I see the strength of product marketing. Right. Like if you look at different organizations, in some cases you find you know product marketing is is pretty close to like sales enablement and mm-hmm. sales road, like kind of boots on the ground, tactic driven. And to me, it's less valuable on on that side. I feel it's more valuable where it builds the connection between the customers and the PM and engineering teams. And you know, if if you look at, well, I was like, now my my product management peers are going to frown at me. But <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I feel like if you're in product management, right, you get very caught up in in actual user of your product and optimizing for that user based on what you're seeing in the product and so i feel like you lose some visibility into what's going on in the market and like what else is there sure so that to me is where product marketing can bring the big the the most value is by going and really figuring out well you know great this is this is your view because these are the customers that you're serving right now but what else is out there? What could you be doing to deliver value to other segments and thereby also increase in a step change way the value that you're delivering to the customers you already Right, have. right. That, that's a great point. So like how much of the product strategy was informed by whether it was customer conversations versus market intelligence data versus data from mix panel or something like that, right? Because so many product teams can 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 get lost in data. And think they yeah. don't need to get talk. They don't need to talk to customers, right? Because they have all this mixed panel data. We know exactly what users are doing. We know exactly what makes them perform X and Y. Um, yeah. So, like, how much? But when when you talk about that customer research component and the market research, like, how much of that uh, d- drove you know the overall product strategy and 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 you know how how was that actually executed? I would say pretty much everything that ended up on the roadmap uh, was driven more from customer insight, like direct customer insight, as in talking to people, understanding, uh, serving, trying to figure out, like doing shadowing of what their day looked like and how they interacted in the tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, you also had the NPS data, but even like the NPS data had a lot of the, you know, verbal commentary um, parts to it. And so we also, we had Mixpanel, uh, we had a lot of other tools. And I feel like these are just as important, but they don't tell you the why. I think the the key thing is like why. Why are people behaving that way? And and sometimes you can like kind of like figure out the why if you just look at the flow and how the data goes, and they sure, went from here yeah. to there, and mm-hmm. you infer that why. But I feel it's always better to <laughs> actually ask the why, because <laughs> sometimes the why surprises you, <laughs> and and your your notion of why they were doing it is is very different from the actual reason they behave that way. What what was the pro like? Was there a process for for connecting with customers, for finding uh, great ones to talk with, reaching out? Like, you know, mm-hmm. some teams do that ad hoc, right? Which I mean, yep. uh, that that works too. But was there was there like a documented process that that was part of their yes. every so, day or week routine? Yeah, and I, I I hadn't worked that way with the CX team before, uh, and and so I really liked it, and I I recommend it. Uh, we had a resource in CX that was basically booking. Uh, it was like almost like a booker. So constantly right. booking customer interviews, finding customers to talk to. When we did, uh, we did an, an annual benchmark survey that we did with the customers just to have an understanding of like how stuff changing year over year. Um, also an opportunity for us to like if we had a specific like you know between PM engineering and PMM if we couldn't if we couldn't agree, <laughs> uh, that gave us an annual ver- way to like ask the customers and you know let them decide the fate. Um, and so it, as part of that, we always asked, hey, would you be willing to um, talk to us one-on-one on product research uh, and customer research? And, uh, and everybody who opted into that would be the core list for the booker to go after right. if we had a specific question. Right? Um, and I like that that just took so much time out of the process and also took some of the randomness out of the process, right? So if you were looking at a specific thing that you were trying to build, let's say you had a specific feature capability that were you were looking at and you knew it was relevant to a specific segment, having like all the survey data on a per person basis made it easy right. to find the right people to talk to. 
That was going to be my next question is who, who is the right person? Because you can, there's, there's different schools of thought, right? There's users that might not be getting the most value out of the product, but then it's like, do you, do you spend time with people who might not be happy with the product, might not ever be happy with the product, might not be a good fit? Or do you talk to customers that are using the product, you know, uh, are the ideal customer and you want to hear from them on, on, on what value they're deriving from the product, maybe things that, uh, they're missing. How, how do you how do you decide who's the right type of customers to talk to? That's a really good question. I think it depends on on where you are in the maturity of the product, right? Like, so for for go to webinar, you're like late stage. The product is, you know, super mature, overripe, basically. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so in that case, there isn't like there isn't that much more to go super deep on so i felt that was better to get a cross-section of people using it to see you know what other opportunities are there uh and so um but then there it's not entirely true also because like we went we went really deep on some of the marketing use cases um to determine hey how can we like for example we we had like a whole motion around on-demand and recording and publishing these on-demand recordings to generate leads and stuff like that. That was super deep on just one specific right. buyer persona. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, it's it's both, but I do think it shifts over time. Like I think initially, right, once you found product market fit, I would go super deep on just that one right. persona. Mm-hmm. And like until I feel like I've, I've built the 80 uh, the, the 20% that, that are going to deliver 80% of the value and then i think then comes the time when you decide okay right like can i open up something else right rather but than I, trying to optimize for that but are you talking to the customer within that persona that say has 70% of the product set up using it every week you or are you talking to the customer that's using it maybe has it 20% of the way set up is using it infrequently and maybe they're not seeing the value yeah, I think again, right? Like, I, I think it depends on um, on the data that you're seeing. So, like, like this is actually a, a specific problem that GoToWebinar had, right? Like, GoToWebinar it's an event-based product. Yeah. We, we had a ton of customers that were using it maybe once every three months or so. Sure. Uh, now it's a monthly subscription, so ideally you want them to pay you every month. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if they don't have a webinar, they're not getting value, right? So, so for us, that was. A sizable enough business issue that it made sense for us to go talk to a lot of the customers that had like low usage frequency um, to see of like how can we give them value outside the peak, right? right? So in that sense, I feel like the the business behavior um, of like how the how the product impacts your business KPIs then dictates what you look at, right? Um, and then we also had a bunch of really intense users. So um, if you look at customer success, right? So for us, one one segment that was kind of new and upcoming and that was really really positive for us was customer success because they had you know they had they started out doing all right like we have some key accounts and we're going to do these one on one engagements, and then over time as customer success matured, right, they they realized, well, I have these other 10,000 customers that nobody's touching. <laughs> what do I do for those guys? All right, let's, let's do some workshops and seminars and webinars. And and so we found that segment to be really high usage frequency. So, so that is one that we then ended up doing a lot of research on where it was focused on like super high intensity users uh, because we were trying to figure out, okay, you know, they're adopting this like crazy. Why? How can we make it better for it? Right? right. So, so in that sense, I feel like the business data leads you to to what you want to look at. And so it's never either or. It's always it's always both. Right. And, uh, and <laughs> right, right. which part of both? <laughs> I think depends on like where your biggest pain is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and who who was the ideal user? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that that's evolved a bit over time. But, uh, I mean, you, you see a lot of, of tech, right? Obviously, uh, any product that could be demoed, right, um, yeah. online. So you see a lot of tech and, and software companies using webinar uh, software uh, for various reasons. Was that a, a big customer segment, um, yes. you know, the, the whole so, time? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, especially as, like, as more tech took off and it was easier to identify who had a relevant stack and you found that these like basically if you look at the core three segments for for go to webinar for example are 
marketing, training on the other hand, and then corporate communications, right? So mm-hmm. marketing, hey, I'm trying to generate leads and get the word out and raise brand awareness and all of that good stuff. Um, training, okay, great. Like either it's like sales training or customer onboarding as so customer success use case. So either internal or external. And then corporate comms, hey, your CEO talking to, I don't know, the 15 offices or whatever. Um, and so out of these three, Training has the highest usage frequency, but doesn't have a ton of budget. Changing a little bit with customer success, but like mm-hmm. the traditional corporate training department, you know, didn't necessarily have deep pockets or a lot of power. Um, and then marketing, marketing had like suddenly the CMO had more tech budget to spend than the CIO. <laughs> and so for us, marketing ended up being a really interesting segment because with all the integrated tech and everybody having you know, marketing automation system in the middle and uh, a wallet to buy other technologies to plug into that and, and make the process more efficient. That was for us a great segment to go after because they had relatively deep pockets and and they wanted integration. And the moment that you had integration made them more sticky and you had better retention. And so uh, we really liked that segment. Uh, but we also had like more organically um, really good success with training customer success even though our focus uh, was probably on the marketing persona more than on the training persona. So what worked in terms of attracting that marketing persona? Webinars? <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, that that is, if you go to a webinar, makes a ton of sense to do webinars mm-hmm. uh, because you're, you're obviously selling the product as you uh, as you do the webinars right like even even when we did top of the funnel pretty broad topics we still had everybody get exposure to the entirety of the product and and so a part of what i'm doing now right like so so in between roles i'm i'm doing a ton of webinar consulting and like my whole playbook is from these times of of doing all the webinars for go to webinar because we found that or essentially like two things that worked really well for converting people over. Um, and uh, number one was like getting them engaged early, right? Like, and, and we could prove this out from all the in-product data. So we could prove out that if, if you, like let's say you're an attendee to the webinar, if you spend any time interacting with the product, you had a much higher likelihood of, a, sticking around to the end of the webinar and then taking the customer's desired action. So if I got you to even just participate in a poll or raise your hand. enter yeah. a question or raise your <laughs> hand, right? Like you had a much higher likelihood of sticking around and also a much higher likelihood of converting. And so my whole playbook ended up being optimized for how do I get people to engage in the session right away? How can I make the session as interactive as I possibly can? And that starts out from as people, you know, starting early as people come in, right? Like having just a general chat, greeting people by name, having like an icebreaker question for that's like something lowball that's easy for everybody to answer and that sets a fun tone. My favorite example is David Hasloff because I'm from Germany and uh, in Germany, <laughs> we all love the off uh and so we I, all love the half daniel uh, yeah thank, thank you well not everybody does you know sometimes i get uh, i get some uh, some raised eyebrows uh us 80s kids that kids. grew up on night rider at least <laughs> now we're dating ourselves but yeah <laughs> uh, and so I, ha- I had a photo of him in bathing shorts um uh from his baywatch time and then hey you know what's your favorite show from when you were a kid what did you binge on the most and that's everybody instantly has an answer to that and the answer is related to fun, right? Like you get yeah. in a good mood when you talk about Knight Rider. It's hard not to. Uh, and and so that kind of question, right? Like easy, early engagement. And then you follow that up with making sure that it's clear that people can ask questions anytime and that you are also going to answer them anytime. So I always try to like pick up a, question, a customer questions within the first five minutes and answer it live. Because then everybody else is like, oh, hey, uh, the questions are going to be answered right away. And so people start asking way more questions. And then just integrating polls, which is really easy. Like easy voting stuff, right? Like also gives you good data. So um, should people go on webcam in a webinar? 83% of people say yes, right? Like it's (laughs) engaging or very engaging, right? Like so it also gives you like good data that you can actually then use in your content or wherever. And any interaction got people to, to... stay around longer and convert. And then the other thing that we did, which I think is really relevant for B2B, is to prompt for hand raisers in session. 
So towards like, you know, you've delivered your content, hopefully it was really good. Uh, you put a question in and a lot of them, as you say, are software companies trying to demo stuff, right? So you're like, hey, um, raise your hand if you're a prospect uh, looking to kick the tires on this. Um, raise your hand, say yes, if you're a customer and you want to learn more about the product and what's new. And then, no, thanks, I'm good for now. Oh, and we also threw in, um, yep, I'd like to speak to the uh, to the presenter, whoever the presenter was, whoever the speaker was, one-to-one. And we got anywhere between 12 to 26% of the people in session um, to raise their hand and say, yep, I'm ready for a follow-up. And then you come, like where traditionally you would, you know, chuck all this stuff over, like you have a webinar attendee list and you chuck it over to your SDR team and they call everybody and it kind of fizzles. Now you can have a much more meaningful conversation and you have the SDRs follow up on the hand raisers specifically on what they raise their hand for. Right. And and that just ended up working really, really well. And that's what I recommend. Like if you're doing webinars and you're selling any type of B2B service or product, you know, get the hand raisers right there in the session and right, then follow right. up with those guys immediately. And for, for go to webinar, obviously you had a massive advantage in that anytime you hosted a webinar, everybody attending is using the product in some capacity, right? So there's a sort of viral yeah. component there. But I would imagine that there was also a viral element to everyone else who was using your software to host webinars, their attendees. So for example, HubSpot, uh, you know, early on in my career, when I was in the agency world, I would attend HubSpot webinars, they were hosted on GoToWebinar. And, you know, we all have that, the login uh, experience, uh, the hand raising, we're, we're inside the product, even though our companies themselves might not be users. So when it came time for us to host a webinar, it was obvious, right? So how much yep. of acquisition was driven by that viral loop there that that referral loop? Uh, I'd say that was the the number one channel, right? Like if you, and it may not have been as apparent if you looked at your, you know, if you looked at your just conversion data by channel, but it was really obvious when you started asking people, how'd you find out about us? Right. <laughs> right? So, I uh, so <laughs> yeah. And, and like the number one answer was like, I attended a webinar. Oh, I, I used you as a webinar tool in a previous role. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was by far the number one channel. And that's still I mean, I think that's that's the benefit of you've been around for a while in general is that you you have a lot of credibility built up from the past that is just going to keep on giving. Right. And uh, and that is yours to lose, basically. Right. Sure. And and uh, by the time you were at Citrix, right, the the company was how many thousands of employees? The product was already. Uh, massive. Yeah, I think the Citrix Citrix had so when I like Netvira had two hundred people when I joined Citrix. I think Citrix had just under ten thousand, um, and probably about two thousand working on the on the like what they call it, Citrix Online, which is go to right. and then a couple of other products. Um, and yeah, so how did the I'm curious? How did the product influence? your recruiting efforts, because I would imagine because you're running so many webinars and webinars were so effective uh, in your own marketing funnel, were you obviously recruiting people who had good presentation skills, public speaking experience, people that were already comfortable doing that kind of work on, you know, w- w- with webinars? Um, talk about how the, how, how the product, if at all, influenced, you know, your, your recruiting efforts for the team. I don't think it did much. Um, so, so reflecting on like all the hiring that I've done throughout the ten years, uh, I think the product that I hired for played almost no role uh, in 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 how I selected the people. So, so I would say how I end up selecting people for for any role is kind of the same. I look for mostly I look for attitude, right, and then I look for. Um, hands-on skill set and like can like i actually so you know, whenever i can i will throw in like stuff to work on right or get someone in for for an assignment or get to know them in some way like even if it's just like for half an hour like for the i remember for the last round of of interviewing that i did for for pmm roles for for go to webinar at the time i had like i had i think four for example uh, examples to work on. I think one was positioning related, uh, one was data analysis related, and I actually brought challenges that I had at the time in the business <laughs> and just wrote them down. And I looked, uh, and I, people only had half an hour, so I wasn't expecting 
something amazing, right? But it was very telling how people responded to that or how they dealt with that. And like, it, it wasn't one of these like stress type interviews where everybody hates you afterwards, right? Like that was not the point. Uh, the point was really just to get like, okay, right? Like how do they think about one of these really specific PMM problems? Uh, and like the best people had amazing answers in 30 minutes where you you could see that they were a applying their unique way of thinking uh, to it and then also they came with the right experience to you know they just right. they just snapped and they had an answer uh, it, it, and it was a gut answer but it, it was right <laughs> and folks like that are going to learn any new technology or they're yeah. going to be right yeah they're going to be proactive whether they're hosting a webinar that maybe they've never done that before but um, yeah, and that, that's maybe the other thing I look for is like, are, have they done like, have they done any, any stuff on the side? Do they have like any any pet projects, anything the that they, yeah. yeah, anything that they they use this skill set for outside of work, which tells me that they're really invested in it and they actually have fun doing it. I think that right. that's what it comes down to: fun to work with and and fun doing. They have fun it. doing it, right? So let's talk about re- reporting and and how the team holding the team accountable. So. uh obviously every company is different. Every product's different. What were some of the KPIs that mattered most uh, for the product team when you were at Citrix? Uh, and then also what was in terms of reporting and forecasting, what was your cadence? Uh, what was your preference for reporting on performance? Yeah. So, well, the, the main, the main aspect was business performance, right? Like how are we doing in terms of um, revenue bookings, revenue retention, right? Like all the, the key business metrics. And then leading up to that, um, any leading indicators for how that would go, right? Like looking at trials, looking at sales funnel, uh, looking at pipeline, um, and all basically all the leading indicators that went into the traditional marketing and sales funnel. Uh, and that was looked at and is still looked at on a on a product basis, on a segment basis, um, to really understand okay, what are the contributing factors, and, and how does that translate into trends that we're seeing in the customer segments, so that we can say, all right, like this segment is performing well. This is something that we want to lean into, whatever, right? Uh, and then we already talked about the the usage factors, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. uh, NPS, usage data, sure. uh, and stuff like that. Um, but th- those are the business KPIs. So if I have like if I looked at at one of the product marketing managers on my team, they would have that responsibility broken down on a per product basis. Uh, and I would expect them to be living and breathing these numbers and being able to tell me how their business is doing based on those numbers. And so, um, so for that, um, to me, what is most important to make the team effective and dangerous is to have ready sliceable, diceable access to that data, right? Um, so we had a lot of that data available through cubes, uh, reporting cubes, and then being able to, to use that in, in pivots and slice and dice it themselves. And so I've had various, like over various roles, I've had various versions of this, right? Like I've had Tableau, I've had cubes, I've had just like dashboards. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the more granular access you can give the team that are closest to the work to the data that's relevant to that work. Yes, um, speaking my the language. Better the success. <laughs> yeah, because like, so, you know, I feel like nothing's more frustrating than having to drive and lead a business from a dashboard. Right? Yeah. And, and you try to click into the dashboard and you realize, oh shit, there's nothing to click into. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if I, if I want to know what's beneath this, then I am basically stuck creating a, a BI request and a ticket. Yeah, you got to wait days I or get weeks. a cut of data right. back yeah. like two weeks later. And yeah. then I realize that half of the stuff that I need is missing. And then put in another you know, ticket. And like, <laughs> exactly. It ends up being this endless loop of. Uh, of trying to get the data that you need. And so any way I can have slice and dice access to the data underneath, right? Like be it Tableau or in, in, in this case, cubes where I can actually drill into the data, change the dimensions. I feel like that's what you need down to the level of the PM and PMM to really make them dangerous. And now not, not all of the PMMs not everybody has that drive and skill set to use the data in that specific way. And I I don't think it necessarily like 
to me, it's not a deciding factor in if someone is a good PMM or a bad PMM, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. like you can be a good PMM and not not be as deep in that data. Um, but I feel like you have a better chance of being a good PMM if you really understand the data at at the ground level. And and slicing and dicing to me is the way you get that understanding, right? Like you just you pull the data in and you look at a, diff- a couple of cuts to just see what the trends are and, and get an understanding. I, I remember when I got the offering lead role for for go to webinar at the fir- uh, the first time, I I put a cheat sheet together that I carried in my wallet. That uh, was just like uh, 10 key factors about GoToWebinar and like knowing all the percentage cuts um, <laughs> by by heart so that any time a question around GoToWebinar came up in any in any business meeting, I'd just be able to get up and say, yeah, the distribution is like 23 point whatever percent, right? <laughs> and everybody then goes like, whoa, this guy knows his, inside, his business inside out, right? Like so, uh, so the credibility that you get from that, you... It's much easier to get if you actually have true slice and dice access to the data. So another example of that is when I talk about webinars. So when, when I when I go to inbound and I, I talk about webinars at inbound, I constantly cite data that supports what I'm talking about. And the reason I can cite it by heart is that I've actually done the analysis of the data. If I hadn't done the analysis on the data, I wouldn't be able to cite it by heart. So we did this uh, this big big analysis of um, over half a million sessions run on GoToWebinar, and really drilling into everything, right? Like how many people registered, how many attended, what were the underlying factors, what tech was used, what features were used, blah 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 blah. When did they sign up? What time was it? What time of day? What time zone? And really analyzing that data to death. The result of that is is since I analyzed it to death, I know it by heart. And I can recite it at any moment and it, and I can like or the like, you know, the 83 percent on webcam, right? Like you have that data available. It's just part of it's saved somewhere and you can call it back in an instance. And I think you can only do that if you have slice and dice access to the data underneath. Right. Yeah. If, Sorry, if, if, if we did um, if we did ads on this show, this would be the shameless plug for Databox because uh, <laughs> <laughs> accessibility is a huge part of it. And in, in previous jobs, I've I've suffered from some of the uh, symptoms you've talked about is not knowing exactly what was working and why having to put in requests, getting it back a week later, and it wasn't exactly right, or what you were asking for, and then having to restart the process all over again. And it just obviously slows everything down. Um, So, uh, so yeah, and, and what was your cadence for, you know, putting together, you know, whether it was planning, were you doing quarterly planning? Was it an annual uh, plan, like, what was your preferred cadence in terms of putting together the priorities of, for the team? Uh, so we did annual planning, quarterly planning, uh, and then we kind of did a rolling roadmap. And um, but my <laughs> my favorite part about planning is, or my favorite quote on that is, uh, is the Basecamp guys, uh, where <laughs> uh, you know one of their books, I think uh, one of the chapters titled "Planning is Guessing." So I feel <laughs> to some degree, uh, to some degree, I I would. I would almost do away with planning and just look at at trending uh, time over time trending uh, because like half the time no wait that's not right like probably like eighty percent of the time I feel like planning is just like a giant waste of time right right yeah. <laughs> and also and also drives like all the wrong behaviors and like you're you're looking at like delta to plan. And you're like, man, this is way off from plan. We got to do something. And the reality is just like your plan sucked. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. the only reason for the delta. <laughs> and now you're off trying to find the reasons for the delta, and uh, and it's a hunt for something that isn't there. Yeah. And it's just a huge time sink. So uh, so in terms of planning cadence, uh, I feel like whatever whatever the minimal the minimal amount of planning you can get away with. That to me is the optimal planning case. Well, I th- yeah, I think planning is really a, a a result of having clear goals, right? I, I think if if the organization and the teams have clear goals, it's a lot easier to put a plan in place on things you think are going to influence that, right? Uh, I think forecasting, yeah. you could argue, right, is is a lot of guessing. And uh, a quote from one of my old bosses at my old job was like, uh, "The only guarantee from our forecast is that it's going to be wrong." Uh, <laughs> But everybody did it anyways, right? It was it was it was a 
it was a it was a high priority with, within the leadership of the company. Uh, but in terms of like planning, right? If you have clear goals, or if teams have clear goals, it, it's m- a little bit more straightforward in terms of like putting together a plan that you think is going to influence those things. And then, to your point, if you have if the team has access to slice and dice data they can call audibles, right, more easily on the fly, right? And, and, and you're not really waiting as long to, until you see a problem and saying, like, oh, shit, the whole plan's off. Yeah, I, you know, if you think of planning more as, like, you know, what are, what are the strategic goals that I'm trying to reach and what is my plan for getting there, as in not planning numbers but planning the work, that makes right. total sense, right? right like, yeah. hey, I want to have a plan in place, for, well, what do I think? How am I going to achieve the goals? What's my long-term What's my long-term plan for the work I need to do to get to the goal I want to achieve, right? But I feel like in a lot of cases, planning ends up being like a giant Excel spreadsheet yeah. with lots of mm-hmm. random numbers and, and everybody just makes stuff up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not productive. That's, that's not productive uh, for anybody. Yes. Um, so uh, I want to end more on a, a personal note for you. Obviously, uh, uh, you're you're starting a new gig soon, right? Can you tell us where? Yes, I will be at a company called Appfolio, and they do property management software. And so basically, uh, it's like your system of record. It's uh, if you're in property management, then uh, it's like your SAP um, sort of. You do everything in it, and yeah. So I'll be uh, I'll be owning a business segment there. Uh, called Large Residential, so I'll be the senior director of marketing for Large Residential, and I'm really excited about that because, like, I think it harks back to something that we we talked about um, on the call just now, and that is right, like ownership of something. I feel like teams are best able to execute if they own a very specific piece of the business, and so that's why I like working in that offering team structure, um, and that's why it's exciting to me to like be able to own a business segment, right, so that you can basically do the the full 360 degrees on it and take it from place a to place b so i think that is going to be a ton of fun and i will definitely be using webinars in that i was just going to say our webinar is going to be part of the playbook absolutely (laughs) honestly like does is there anyone with with more domain knowledge on webinars than you please don't be there probably is humbly yeah (laughs) you think so uh yeah but i was like when i but when i went out um there's always i i I would say there's always someone who's better out there somewhere, right? <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, I do think based on the consulting that I've done, right, like when I, when I thought about, okay, great, I'm, I'm out. I have two months to do, uh, to do something else. What's my superpower? Webinars definitely were, were the superpower <laughs> that I thought of. I, I, I think that is the one thing that I know a ton about and where I can accurately predict if something's going to work or not <laughs> right right do you think the web webinar is just the i mean the the, the it's the the strategy is has changed a bit right for companies because there's different presentation formats now right you have streaming you have live video you have podcasting right you have all these things like how have you seen the role change at all uh from from webinars or do you see it only increased as there's more attention paid to uh, you know, presentation formats. Well, I, I think I think the whole video and live streaming thing is actually a good thing for webinars too because it just, it, it serves the same purpose, right? Like it serves that purpose of being approachable and, and building a relationship. And if you look at, you know, all the video that, that people put on social media, right? Like I, I'll now, I'll record video and I'll put it up on social uh, and it's just as effective as a webinar is, is building a relationship. Now, where I think webinars really shine is that nature as a point in time event, right? Because right. there is, right, like if you think like, let's say you do a Facebook Live, uh, sure, there's going to be some people that are going to tune in, but they're also more apt to leave earlier and not as many are, are going to come. It's not like, hey, there's like an event happening at a specific time. And that is something where webinars really work well people still see it as like well this is this thing it's going to happen on thursday at 10 and i got to be there to do it right and that means you have a captive audience in the moment that is prepared to go really deep with you if you actually have the quality of content that they look for if you have if you answer their problem if you answer what they came for they're going to stick with you 
for 60 minutes. Now, where else are you going to get 60 minutes of anybody's time <laughs> to talk about business, right? Like, uh, let's take a trade show. People are going to swing by. Maybe you, you do a 15-minute demo or so, right? Uh, it's really hard to get 60 minutes with anyone. And, like, this is your opportunity. And that doesn't mean you have to do 60 minutes uh, as a format. But that's how long, on average, people stay on 61 minutes. Uh, on a marketing webinar and I think that's just an incredible asset for you being able to come on camera show your personality build trust and then also like have this amazing opportunity to convert and like get them to take an action right you've just educated them on how to solve a specific problem what better time to pitch your solution of how you're going to help them um, take action on what you just taught them and uh, and so I think webinars in this format will continue to be a big part of how people drive conversion at the bottom of the funnel in B2B. And, and I think that's, that's where they shine. Will they, you know, will they get modernized over time? I think so. So you can, like even in, in, in how I was using them or how I am using them. And I think we talked about this initially. I, I feel like it's more about putting on a show. It's more, more like a, a radio show uh, than a lecture. Right. And so I think people will swing around and tools will get to the point where they better support an interactive format rather than uh, than the standard like, hey, here's slides and, 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 a, uh, and a voice. Well, looking forward to seeing uh, what you come up with and, and your webinars at uh, Appfolio. So looking forward to seeing that. Cool. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Daniel, this was a lot of fun, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing. And uh, it was it was super interesting to hear about, uh, I mean, 10 years, right? Working on the go-to line of products. Uh, as a heavy user of it over the years, it was it was great to hear some of the backstory and how you structured the team and, and the approach to marketing it. So thanks for coming on, man. Well, thanks for having me, John. I had a ton of fun sharing. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.